We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to 2023 and Season 4, Episode 1 of Watch with Jen, which marks the 176th installment of the podcast so far. We have a stellar lineup of new and returning guests, a nice combination of some of your favorites who are all set to come back to the show, as well as voices you and I will be discovering together for the first time. I've recorded several conversations so far and have five more scheduled soon. And the feel of these episodes so far is looser than it has been in the past, as we're just moving freely from one film to the next. While I'm sure we will still have some very structured and more research-filled shows, including two on deck right now that I'm working on, I hope you will enjoy the breezier approach for the rest and want to thank you so much for tuning in. So let's kick off the year, shall we? This week, I am honored to welcome back Ted Griffin, the terrific creator of the FX series Terriers and an outstanding screenwriter whose credits include Ravenous, Ocean's Eleven, and Matchstick Men, which was co-written with his brother Nicholas. Ted is additionally the producer of such Oscar-nominated films as Up in the Air and The Wolf of Wall Street, as well as the infectiously entertaining Emmy-nominated series Pretend It's a City. Ted, I want to thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing and how is 2023 treating you so far? Uh, thank you for the nice intro. You managed to, to uh, avoid all the credits I flinch at. Um, okay, good. Well done. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm doing great. It's award season, which is, as we all know, the happiest time of year. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, and, and I'm just getting over a cough. So in case I wheeze, um, don't. Sinus don't, as well. So same. All right. Don't call 911. Um, yes. Or do. Um <laughs> But uh, 2023's uh, uh, doing all right by me so far. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And 
recently you've had some more acting credits to your name um the career's really taking off uh for <laughs> those of you out there who love my performances agent hughes and wolf of wall street the f the fbi agent who doesn't speak um you can you can see me uh very briefly in both poker faces pilot directed by my friend ryan johnson and the rom-com your place or mine written and directed by actually sorry poker face was written and directed by ryan your place or mine was written and directed by my friend lean brush mckenna so i'm getting cast i'm getting pity cast in things uh <laughs> which is um worked for me in high school and is happening again so i gotta we'll start working on your consideration ads yes yeah we need those out for next award season. Yeah. Remember, Ted Griffin is what we're saying. Exactly. Yeah. As, as Stevie the Doorman and Dale McClintock Gambler. The um, pivotal performances of oh, those man. projects, those, for sure. Shows really, yeah. Everything hinges on the doorman. That's what we're going for. A yeah. lot of people have asked if, if those two characters fought, uh, which would win. And I really like to let just the audience kind of figure out that. I, I don't want to. Okay. And one or the other. Why ruin the fantasy of the mm -hmm. fight between those two? Because I mean, there's so much fan fiction that's been written about it, and we we know. Yeah, is there and, anything else you're working on? Um, uh, yes, and uh, but nothing to promote yet. Um, okay, I'm trying to give, uh, uh, what I can say for myself. No, I've been in a bunker, and and ho hopefully we'll be on the floor with something. But um, sounds good. Talking on wood on that. Yes. Well, I was so excited to team up with you again. I had a lot of fun talking Leo McCary with you and also exchanging movie recommendation ideas via email. So I was really excited that you um, graciously agreed to come back. You had so many good ideas for episodes. I know we'll have a lot of fun going over some of those in the future as well. But the one that I kind of zeroed in on, I think it might have been first on your list, was writer-director Curtis Hansen, who's long been one of my favorites because Wonder Boys is one of my all-time favorite movies. And he also did, you know, the masterpiece LA Confidential and all kinds of other great films, including the thrillers that we're going to talk about today. But I was curious, what brought you to Curtis Hansen as your idea? Um, this it, it, it might be a long-winded answer, so I'm just going to jump right I'm in. I'm cool with it. I think um, everyone would like it. When I was a when I was a young screenwriter, newly in the business, um, in September of 1997, I was in fact in my in my first year of getting uh, paid to be as a screenwriter um, and getting taken out to dinner by people. Mm -hmm. I was invited by a couple of uh, Warner Brothers execs to the premiere of LA Confidential. Oh wow! Uh, and it was one of those nights that that it was sort of the perfect Hollywood night of like, this is what in your imagination of what going to a premiere will be like, this is it. Um, I was familiar with the novel by, L I, I'd sort of become an Elroy fan a few years before. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of knew what I was getting into, but, um, and I remember back then I still took premieres seriously enough to like, that I would, try to dress nicely, I, a, a suit, no tie or something like that. So these execs took me to dinner at Musso and Frank's, the story, legendary Hollywood restaurant. And then we yes. went down the street to the Chinese theater where the 
uh, premiere was. And as we walked up to the premiere, the soundtrack was blasting. So music I'd grown up listening to, like Lee Wiley and Dean Martin was playing. And I just sort of thought, oh, wow, this is like yeah, perfect. going to a premiere in the 40s and 50s. It, it, uh, and um, the movie played. And when the credits started to roll, it was that weird experience you sometimes have of like, I think I just saw a great movie mm-hmm. and I have, but it's just my opinion right now. And like most people in Hollywood just sort of like, I need to corroborate this, but I, but I turned to somebody, I said, I think that might be a classic. Yeah. And there was this great energy. Everybody came out of the theater and because I think Warner brothers had sort of um, blown all their cash on a, a big uh, event at Cannes, there was no party for the LA premiere Mm-hmm. But people just gathered on the footprints at Grandma's Chinese and stayed there for an hour just talking. No bar. There wow. Was no, no incentive to hang out. And and I sort of joined that, really not knowing that many people yet, um, but seeing, you know, some recognizing some people from the movie. And then I w- uh, was introduced to an agent named George Freeman. And uh, and he said, "You're Ted Griffin." I said, uh, "Yeah." Like a little surprised to be known. And he grabbed me and he dragged me across to meet his client, Russell Crowe. And Russell oh Crowe said, "Oh, you're Ted Griffin." And I was like, uh, "Yeah." And it was this like, "You just became a movie star inside, and you know who the hell I am." It was this <laughs> incredibly flattering moment. He had read Ravenous and wanted to do it. Oh wow! The, the irony is that. Guy Pierce, who was somewhere else in the crowd, ended up um, doing the movie. Ravenous. And um, which is also, and this is completely for <clears throat> deep track fans. I think I had inadvertently ripped off the beginning of Ravenous from a scene in the book LA Confidential because Ed Exley has a bout of cowardice in World War II for which he which turns into like uh, gets rewritten as a bit of heroism. And that's how Ravenous starts. And the irony is that Guy Pierce ended up playing both Ed Exley and my lead character, John Boyd was like, uh, I think somebody picked up on it much later. I had forgotten the theft when we made the movie, frankly, but anyway, for anyone out there who thinks that uh, the, the, I had a great idea for the beginning of Ravenous. (laughs) <laughs> which is on the criterion channel right now we yeah. were talking off air about oh, we'll that pr- yeah we'll promote that that ravenous is now on the criterion channels um yes. so um uh anyway so that was my first experience with la confidential and i was i w- was and have been nuts for the movie since i yes it's, i i rarely go to a year or two without watching it and i find it both a great movie and an extremely rewatchable comfort food movie, if that makes any sense. It it straddles both categories in the same way that I would say The Godfather does for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like I both like enjoy it and esteem it. Um, yeah, that's a Christmas there. movie in our house. Yeah, The Godfather's, <laughs> and you can kind of see that with LA Confidential for sure. Um. So then in. 1999 or early 2000 I was set up on a meeting with Curtis Hansen and 
I think by that time I had written the script for Ocean's Eleven and that had sort of gotten passed around. So maybe he'd read that. Um, it's tough to say, but, uh, but we hit it off and he had a book that he owned that he wanted to um, uh, adapt into uh, to, to a script. And I may not mention the title of it because I okay, sure. don't know where it's at now, but it's a, it was sort of a, a, an adventure movie, a period adventure movie in sort of partly a little bit of David Lean, a, a little bit of, uh, God, who's another good example of this? But like a lot of Curtis's stuff, it kind of had a foot in classic film, and then, but with, with a with the idea of making it f- feel contemporary in a way, which we'll talk yeah. about. I think, which is true of a lot of these thrillers that we're going to talk about today. Anyway, so I signed on, um, having barely read the book, just because I thought Curtis was great. Yes. And, we spent a good deal of that year together uh, talking about this, hanging out. Um, he took me uh, to a Bud Bedeker retrospective screening of, it was either Seven Men From Now or The Tall Tea or both. And there was a Q&A, Q&A afterwards with, with, with Bud and, and Curtis. And I remember, and Bud Bedeker was pretty old and probably died oh. maybe a year later but it was delightful um watching them together and and hearing stories from Bud Bedeker and there was a real feeling of like Bedeker was one generation Curtis was the next generation down I was I felt like the next oh. generation like I felt like oh I'm I'm the grandson here and anyway I got to like Curtis very much and we'll talk a little bit about his personality later what didn't happen was I couldn't wrap my head around this book and the script. And I spent a long time and I wrote a hundred pages of screenplay and realized I wasn't really even halfway into the book. And I was extraordinarily frustrated with that. Ocean's Eleven was about to start production in Las Vegas. And I was kind of, uh, and I was also, even though I was just newly 30, I was, probably in retrospect, pretty dumb um, and distracted. And I basically gave the hundred pages to Curtis and said, I'm so sorry, I cannot figure this out. And I have to go to Las Vegas now to sort of watch a movie get made. And mm-hmm. so I, I I really, I disappointed dad. Oh, anyway. too bad we couldn't clone you and you could have done both. I, yeah. I, I uh, looked into it at the time. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, so not that it ended acrimoniously, but after something like that, I sort of like, I just kept my distance. And, um, a few years later, a very long story, which I'll, um, boil down to this. I got fired off of a movie, which was pretty traumatic. And when something traumatic happens in your life, you tend to remember those people who call you up and say, Hey, how you doing, man? You okay? Yeah. That was Curtis Hanson. And oh wow, that's so nice. And he told a story about how he nearly got fired off of one of the movies we're going to talk about today and what happened. And but he was um a source of consolation and support. And um we didn't hang out necessarily uh 
but uh, for the rest of his life, but we did see each other occasionally and, um, uh, and some other, I saw him some other times, which I'll, I'll get to later on. Um, and he was, I think he was, so in a way he was like the mentor that got away. Mm-hmm. And I, so I've chosen him today as sort of a mea culpa for screwing that one up. Oh, uh, well, we're honoring him. And, yeah. and, and we're honoring him because I also, like Leo McCary, think he's a really terrific filmmaker who had an interesting kind of bifurcated career between being a genre director who was sort of a journeyman. And I think he would probably, he would be proud of that statement. Like, I think he, he considered himself a craftsman, not an auteur. Mm-hmm. And then he managed to make, in my mind, a masterpiece and a miracle of, of Hollywood craftsmanship in the, in a way LA confidential shouldn't be as good or he shouldn't have gotten away with that movie. And it somehow, um, through skill and luck did. And then the second half of his career, which we won't talk about today is sort of his moment of being able to explore all the other genres, uh, and do things on a certain level that he wasn't allowed in the first half of his career. Um, for those who don't know, he died too young. He, uh, yes, he died uh, at seventy-one uh, from um, uh, FDT, which um, I'll pronounce in a second. But it's basically the same thing that Bruce Willis has now. It's it's a yeah. sort of dementia in which you're not aware that you have it, um, which is yeah, very cruel, extremely mm-hmm. cruel, especially to all the people around you because he was. Um, kept wanting to go back to the set. Yeah. Um, even I when can't he imagine. was completely incapable. So, um, anyway, yeah, so, I, so. I worked in a nursing home and volunteered. And so I dealt with some seniors who had similar issues and they were always like thinking that they were needed back on the farm to do chores or whatever it was. And yeah, it was very hard. Cruel uh, disease. Anyway, so with, um, so then I'll said that's why uh, I want to talk about Curtis Hanson. Yes. And I do want to talk a little bit about his biography, but so that I'm not that long-winded, we can, if you want, we can sort of talk about a, a movie and then I can like jump back in time and say what led up, like what led up to Silent Partner or what his what youth was like. Yes, I was fascinated learning more about him because I always loved his work. I remember seeing uh, The River Wild with my older brother and his friends. And that was the first one I really went as a big group with. And we had so much fun. They were the group that I saw basically all the movies with in the 90s. And so it kind of started with The River Wild. So I love that. I I knew who Curtis Hansen was by the time I got to LA Confidential because of it. But looking back at his career, I wasn't sure where it began. He was a high school dropout, a surf bum who became like a film writer, a critic and an editor and a photographer. And that was his first experience with the film camera. I found um, doing a little bit of research, but I love how much he was just passionate about movies, which was so cool. There were stories about him going to all those rep screenings, like you talked about with the the Buttaker um, Westerns, which is so cool. And UCLA Film and Television Archive made him their first ever honorary chairman, which I thought was 
you know, very fitting for Curtis. He's somebody who talks very passionately about um, watching Vertigo as a child and also the films of Sam Fuller, who was one of his mentors. And then, you know, there's that great group of filmmakers in the era that kind of had their or cut their teeth at American International Pictures, Roger Corman. And so that was one of his um, experiences as well. There's some funny stories about like Peter Fonda leaving a car with a nasty message on uh, Dunwich Horror, which was like one of the films he uh, first made uh, when Peter Fonda got Easy Rider. So there's a lot of great stories about his um, career or what led up to it that I was uh, totally new to in researching this. So I want to thank you for inspiring me to do that. But looking at these movies, even, um, you know, the ones like Wonder Boys and In Her Shoes and Eight Mile, the films that came after LA Confidential, there is sort of a running theme that goes through them. And he has acknowledged it as well as it's people who are constantly in search of their better selves or people mm. trying to uh, find what's next. And I think that kind of comes from that sort of beginning of being a high school dropout and searching for the next thing and knowing there's more than that and uh, continuing to go for it. Yeah. Having known him, it's it's strange looking back, especially at these five movies, and and thinking about him. Um, if you you can, I'm sure listening in, you can Google him and find bring up a picture. At the time, I always I described him as being like Harry Shearer's taller, thinner brother, <laughs> and who sounded a little bit. And I didn't say this at the time because it wasn't. <laughs> Uh, but that he sounded like David Lynch doing a John Ford impression. Um, <laughs> I, I can't really do a, a Curtis, but it was always like there's a certain timber, and yeah, uh, um, which is strange. So he was, and then watching these movies, I realized, oh, a couple of times, like David Strathairn is Curtis's like the movie version of Curtis. Like, uh, oh, that's interesting. Paul, yeah. Has a certain look and also a little tough to read. Like uh, Curtis was, I, I find a very internal guy, very friendly, very yes. nice, very funny, mm -hmm. but um, not not an extrovert, not not an easy read. And also as a film director, I think, and probably this, I imagine may have held him back early in his career. Not a guy with a lot of like sheen, not not a not a uh, not a salesman. He was a very authentic guy. Yeah. But if you, if you think of a guy, if you're an executive and this guy walks into your office pitching a movie, um, you know, generally studio execs don't think that much of cinephiles. They like guys who are going to be, no, who are going to make yeah. them lucky uh, or who are, who are going to make them money and who are lucky. And but Curtis had great um, reverie, reverence for classic Hollywood, which I think is reflected in his movies. Yes. Uh, and uh and I have a feeling like that almost that sincerity and that reverence probably hurt him to like getting going. Um yeah, I'm, that's gonna, true. I'm gonna tell a little bit of his bio just uh, leading up to um Silent so, Partner. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know he was he was he's very much a Los Angelino in the same way that um Robert Town is like not he doesn't scream California in a like a like it doesn't look like a surfer, 
but he spent a lot of time. He grew, uh, Curtis grew up in the Valley, apparently not too far from James Elroy around the same time. That's what I heard. Yeah. But, it, but spent a predominant amount of his adulthood living in Venice. And there is sort of, there was something kind of beachy about him. Um, but that is nothing like, I guess what you would imagine your popular imagination of like being beachy, being blonde hair and a, in a kind of, in a convertible. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was born in Reno, Nevada for the very peculiar reason that his father was a conscientious objector in world war two and mm-hmm. was sent there as to a labor camp, which I didn't quite know existed. Uh, wow. and, um, so Curtis's dad and mom were living in Reno with their uh, young child when uh, Curtis was conceived and born. And so uh, so he's a native Nevadan, but really a Los Angelino. And he grew up in, I think, largely in Reseda, I think. But his father was an extraordinarily popular public high school English teacher. And, um, and so... I think Curtis was raised as a reader, uh, as a and, and a book lover, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily as a spectacular student. He did drop out of high school. Then he got his GRE and went to Middlebury for, I think, a year. There are a couple of conflicting reasons about why he dropped out of Middlebury. One was um, because after Kennedy was shot, that he disagreed with the university policy about how much time they like um they didn't cancel classes another one was that he just wanted to be the film critic for the newspaper and they only allowed juniors and seniors to do that and he said screw it so he left um so he was always he was i think in a way like impatient to find that next thing um and he came back to la and his um uh his uncle uh uncle jack hansen was uh, kind of the successful brother, and he owned a club, a, f- a, a really famous club at the time called the Daisy, which was where the Rat Pack hung hung out in Beverly Hills. Rat Pack hung out there, but sort of the Hollywood um, uh, jet set were uh, hung out there a lot. So Curtis, um, I think, started parking cars there or working there. Uncle Jack also had bought a magazine called Cinema. Yes, it was the sort of uh, LA's answer to Cahiers de Cinema, or what, what's the New York one that sort of Bogdanovich and other people wrote for? Um, I can't remember. I'm blanking on uh, it as well. But in a way, um, Curtis started working on that for free and quickly writing and doing interviews and photography, and I think quickly moved up to being its editor. But that gave him access to a lot of people. Uh, and so he was interviewing um, John Ford and some of his heroes. Yes. And I didn't know this until this past week um, that Warren Beatty came to him and said, kid, I need you. There's this actress I want to cast in my next movie, but I need photographs of her. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you do this for me? So Curtis Hansen took Faye Dunaway to the beach and took photographs of her, which are stunning. And oh, wow. Warren Beatty sell her to warner brothers for bonnie and clyde and in return curtis said i don't want to be paid but i do want to be able to come to the set of of bonnie and clyde and watch and interview you so he ended up getting an article out of it but there's a bit of force or sorry of of force gump and curtis and that he's uh 
he's on the set of Bonnie and Clyde. And yeah, uh, one thing I also discovered about Curtis is that he was uh, roommates and pals in the late sixties with Willard Huck or Huck. Uh, I wish I could pronounce that correctly. Um, co-writer with Gloria Katz of American Graffiti and uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Anyway, the story goes that uh, Curtis is actually the inspiration for the Richard Dreyfus character in American Graffiti. Uh, so there's that. And later on, this one's kind of crazy, but his first wife, a woman named Catherine Wooten, was um, the script supervisor on The Twilight Zone. So she came home from work one night at 5 a.m. saying there was an accident on set. Uh, so she was there for the Vic Morrow helicopter. Oh, wow. Um, there's just like, there, there's a, there's weird things that come into Curtis's life. But getting back to the narrative, um, he is, uh, I think, as you said, he, he kind of crosses paths with, Roger Corman, I think that's his first writing gig. Is is uh, have you seen this movie by the way? Don't horror. No. Yeah, I've not, I've not been able to find that Sweet Kill or uh, Little Dragons, which are sort of his um, first low budget swings uh, writing. And then he he wrote and directed a movie for Roger Corman called Sweet Kill, which I believe was uh, originally called The Arousers. Yes, because uh, it was just. You know, uh, Roger Corman wanted Tab Hunter and a bunch of naked gals on a poster, and uh, Curtis delivered that somehow. Um, he made a TV movie. I can't remember what year that was, so I might be jumping ahead of myself about the, the children of Times Square. But basically, that's in the eighties. But yeah, that's from the eighties. Okay, because yeah. that's actually his first movie with Bob Ellswit, who is oh cool, uh, the legendary. Uh, Cinematographer, yeah. Photography, who is also one of his best friends, and they, I'll, I'll get to Bob in a second. Um, am I sorry if I'm being sporadic and jumping all over the place? Oh no, I love it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but ultimately, he got his hands on this book, uh, a Danish book called "Think of a Number," and wrote it on spec, which became and it became uh, it was retitled "Silent Partner." And uh, took it to a, a producer who was friends with named uh, Joel Michaels, and they managed to make it in Canada. But the problem is the the deal with to get the Canadian financing, the mm-hmm. state financing, is they basically needed all uh, most of the, the major participants Canada. to be Canadian. Um, and Elliot Gould was an American, so he was one of their exceptions. But uh, Christopher Plummer was Canadian, and I think Susanna York, by being a member of the Commonwealth, was given a like the okay. Uh, so they shot this movie, which was I think Curtis had originally set in Minnesota, takes place in Toronto now. Oh wow! Which is why a pre SCTV John Candy is uh, in the movie, um, and, and very good, yeah. But Curtis uh, couldn't direct it; they had to get a Canadian, and they got this guy uh, Daryl Duke. Uh, Dylan, Dylan Duke, uh, Daryl Duke, Daryl Duke. I kept on saying David Duke, and which is the worst <laughs> mistake. Uh, sorry, uh, Daryl Duke, who had done um, Paycheck, the which has an excellent rip oh tour. yeah, mm-hmm. and um, but I think part of the uh, Curtis's deal was he had to be around. Um, what happened, uh, I'm told by fairly reliable sources, is that once. Uh, Daryl Duke delivered his director's cut. 
he said, I'm out of here and had other stuff to go do. So Curtis ended up sort of taking over it in post and cutting the movie and then did three or four days of reshoots. Yeah. Uh, and so it, I, I, I consider it very much a Curtis Hansen movie. It has his fingerprints all over it. Um, but I do know that even when I knew Curtis back in 2000, that he was chomping in the bit to remake it. Um, and what I don't know is if there was something that he was dissatisfied with, um, as certainly I've written scripts for movies that I would love to redo. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I do know that he had a lot of ideas of how to update it, but I don't know what his dissatisfaction with it is. That all said, I still think it's a spectacular movie. It's a knockout. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a movie I remember growing up and hearing about and not being able to get back in the days when things, some things were difficult to find. Like you couldn't get, you couldn't see Sorcerer, the William Friedkin movie. You couldn't find. I know. Late Maze and New Leaf. Um, uh, Famously, the Manchurian Candidate was under lock and key. Uh, now, now the only thing you can't get is uh, Jerry Lewis's Day of the Clown Cried, um, <laughs> and that. And we still, and like we have five years left of waiting on that. Um, anyway, so let's talk about the movie. So I can stop talking about um, Curtis for a second. How did you come to it? You know, it was a few years ago. I loved it. I think I probably saw it on TCM originally. And my buddy Travis Woods chose it for my pandemic movie club. Um, It's kind of funny. Curtis was a director. We chose a few films from. I chose uh, The Bedroom Window one week when it was my turn. And Jordan Harper, our friend, chose L.A. Confidential because he adapted Elroy's book and he loves the film for the TV series that was um, going to be made at CBS. He made a pilot with Walton Goggins. It was excellent. It was um, just honored at like the Austin TV Festival uh, a few years ago. So more people got a chance to see it. But um, but yeah, Silent Partner was one. I really, I loved seeing it. It's very Hitchcockian, which is um a Curtis signature. He loves Hitchcock. I read that Elliot Gould years later, or he claimed there's been some pushback on was this real or not, but Gould tells the story that he showed it to Hitchcock and Hitchcock loved it. And Curtis, I guess, was was annoyed by that. He said, that prick didn't even invite me over because he (laughs) loved uh, Hitchcock. But as soon as he heard Hitchcock loved the movie, um, he was okay with it, but he still wished he could have met him. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes uh, the tonal shifts get a little bit of pushback. There's been some stories about the making of the movie, uh, Daryl Duke object- objecting to uh, some of the violence, like the beheading. Some of it is a little extreme and a little um, pushed from the, the tone of the film. I think there are some swings that they said uh, Curtis, maybe for his background with Roger Corman, was more willing to do for the studio and the financiers. 
Um, I'm not sure on the you know veracity of those claims, but I think it's great. I think uh, Gould is fabulous. Christopher Plummer, though, I mean, what he does with his eyes and uh, just how twisted he is. Uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, he's playing a Santa Claus uh, bank robber who we find out is a wild misogynist. Later, he is uh, dressed uh, in drag. Um, he is all kinds of of twisted in this movie and he's brilliant yeah he sort of sort of one-ups the classic hitchcock uh sexually suspect villain and yes like, yeah you, know, you look back on strangers on Strange, like robert walker and you're not sure if he is if bruno is straight or gay or what or mm-hmm. norman bates Plummer is like pansexual uh craziness he's i i it, it took a few viewings until i realized he's wearing fake eyelashes long before he gets up and yes drag. he is somewhere mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle of the movie he comes back uh and he's and um it, it, he's an extraordinary villain and yes I, and now and now another personal remembrance from ted griffin speaking of getting like having one line roles uh Nearly 20 years ago, I got again pity cast in a movie called Must Love Dogs. Um, because oh, people... Diane Lane, John Cusack, exactly. yeah, exactly. And people, people I knew were making it, and there was a one line role of Diane Lane's brother, who was also happened to be Christopher Plummer's son. And they just thought, let's get Ted to play it, and so they cast me, not even an audition. And, <laughs> Uh, Look at written, you! Written and directed by the offer very sweet, only. Yep. Uh, I'm I am offer only. A very sweet man, Gary David Goldberg, creator of Family Ties, uh, co-wrote and directed it. And so I'm there one day, like waiting beside Christopher Plummer, and I know well enough, like don't mention sound and music. Don't. Yeah. Like, yeah. And don't be uh, that guy. Yeah. But but it's still silent partner is still sort of a deep enough cut that I think, oh, I'll I'll impress him by being mm-hmm. and, and so I say this something like uh, I say I I rewatched Silent Partner last week and God you look terrific in that in that dress. I yeah. like I make that kind of joke. And he just looks at me in a complete don't ever speak to me again. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> and I didn't. I just stayed the hell away. So I don't know how, how Chris Plummer felt about um uh if uh, uh that movie versus captain von trapp but i he's very very good in it and yes. um, uh and elliot gould is while he does not look like curtis at all there is something hansonian about him in that he's a very hansonian i like this yes uh enigmatic protagonist at the beginning like you yeah part of the his character is nobody can quite figure him out he does he like does he like Suzanne York doesn't know whether like there's something going on with uh, uh, him. What he He's a collector of fish. He, yeah. He's just sort of a, uh, kind of a, a loner. Guy. Yeah. And, um, and also I guess it, it should be mentioned that the beginning of the movie is very much like the apartment in a way in that it's yes. this, uh, uh, the gal he kind of likes is having an affair with the boss and he's got to mm-hmm. take her to the Christmas party. And he's the beard. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and the movie really does a very good job of like a, right out of the gate, 
um, setting that up, setting up the um, the plumber bank robbery and getting to Gould's plan of sort of stealing from the thief, uh, which begets this cat and mouse thing. And I generally would invite everybody to see the movie instead of listening yes. to us talk about it. I, I did learn that the, the third act of the book has absolutely nothing to do with the movie that Curtis really did um, create that. I don't know if that necessarily comes in, involves the introduction of, and I can't remember the actress's name, but basically like the, uh, the woman who introduces uh, herself to Elliot Gould as being as her, his father's nurse, but is really a, um, oh yeah, agent of Chris Plummer. I don't think that's an invention of Curtis's. It might be. What I do know is sort of the whole uh, final bank robbery third act twist is n- not from the book at all, um, which I believe was adapted prior to Silent Partner into a Danish film, which I have not been able to find. Um, yeah, so I guess it was made twice, and I I don't know yeah. either one. Yeah. Um, uh, what else to say about Silent Part? Yeah, there are moments where it does not need to be quite as violent because it is a, it's very much a classic Hitchcockian thriller in a yeah. way with uh, with a, a a contemporary, you know, uh, morality and 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 sense of humor mm-hmm. with some egregious nudity. And it's a, not yeah, agree, a but, little but, exploitative, you know, like gratuitous yeah, like, duty. Yeah, don't need Susanna York's no on display um, mm-hmm. in that scene, and uh, uh, and I think I showed it to my my wife, and she hated it because like she just thought it was a really brutal, mean movie. Where I think it's uh, it's a hoot. I'm sorry, Curtis never got to remake it. I'd be curious, <laughs> about it. but yeah, I'm very happy with what, what it is. Yes. Absolutely. Well, his next film that he wrote and directed is another one based on a novel, The Bedroom Window, which I read that uh, he had wanted to do 15 years earlier. Or it took a long time for him to um, get this one made as writer-director. I think Silent Partner, he was hoping to direct originally. Um, so this kind of helped put him on his path into making these genre uh, experiments, these Hitchcockian movies. The Bedroom Window, I think, is terrific. It has Steve Gutenberg. I mean, it's an erotic thriller with Steve Gutenberg. Welcome to 1987. But Dino De Laurentiis thought he was, you know, box office get because he was very popular in comedies. I think he's great, actually, in this. You know, it's an against type performance, but he's really good. Elizabeth McGovern is great. Isabelle Huppert um, adds something extra, which is what I read Curtis um, wanted in her role, because she is a good contrast for Elizabeth McGovern. He said uh, Elizabeth McGovern was the only choice for him. And so she was the one uh, going in he knew he needed for this. So I've always liked The Bedroom Window. It's twisty. Um, What are your thoughts on this one? Lots of thoughts. I remember seeing this in a theater uh, two or three times when I was 16. Okay. Um, and uh, where, to, where to start? First of all, I'll start by saying he actually gets a directing gig between after Silent Partner before Bedroom Window, which is a movie oh, that was it. titled Tijuana. 
and then got retitled Lose Net. That's right. Which in the race of the the race to the uh to the bottom between that and Porky's, it lost. Um it's yes, it's it's, it's a bunch of kids <laughs> go to lose their virginity and uh south of the border and all hell breaks loose. And it's um notable for Shelley Long and for a very young Tom Cruise and a good John Stockwell and Haley uh not Haley Joel Osment, um Jackie Earl Haley. Um it, it's not great. No. Uh they had a I I think it was a good learning experience for him he had to like they were shooting nights in uh uh, i'm gonna get the wrong name of the town wrong but a a, a town right on the mexican border um but it was not successful and so it um in a way i i think there's in curtis at the already at the time is an inclination to do a many different things not just thrillers he also does a draft of Never Cry Wolf, which is a terrific <gasps> Carol uh, Ballard, yes. And uh so he's so he's capable of different things, but um and he had that white dog experience. You know, white earlier. dog example. Yep. Um but this becomes right at like the, his pathway into the chair is making he be and I think he becomes known as a genre director yes. for the first time in his career because th- this is uh uh, this is where he can get the gig and um yeah he, he uh the um the movie's book on a book called the witnesses by i want to say uh ann holden let me look it up and make it up ann holden yeah um which was written in 71 so yeah he he was probably tracking it for a while um mm-hmm. this time watching it i was um struck by a couple things. One is how many good uh, actors he has in small roles, like mm-hmm. Maureen Jacob or Wallace Shawn. Yes, Wallace Shawn is. I mean, that's a great scene. Yes, um, Margolis as guy in phone booth. Uh, yeah, if you're a fan of Scarface, <laughs> you probably like this movie because Margolis and uh, is it Paul Shinar? I, I don't want to get the name wrong. As the as Isabella Hubert's husband are both mm-hmm. veterans to Palm's Scarface. Um so I, I think he he uh it's very interesting he has terrific actors in there. It is one of those movies that as I watch it I always think if this movie had been in black and white and made 20 years earlier it would probably be a classic. For sure. Yeah. It, it would certainly have a, a better reputation than it does. There's there's something the trappings of these, and I think Gutenberg's quite good in this movie. Like yes, his, I agree. His Labrador enthusiasm really kind of works. And when he the has a little humor on, that you need, yeah. like a little bit of uh, Hitchcock humor, because otherwise it it could be like a Sam Fuller movie, essentially. Yeah. yeah. I would. I for some reason I thought I'd, I'd describe him as a Bob Cummings like, uh, <laughs> meaning Bob Cummings really had no dark side. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant, where you think like, okay, there's a little bit of yes. Uh, uh, what's my oh, uh, so yes, I think it was it was done 20 years earlier. There's also something in watching old movies where you have a suspension of disbelief because you think like, well, in the 50s, what did people know? Which was yes. probably they did knew a lot more than we think they did, but um, 
because I think the first half of the movie, the the character actions are are very pretty solid. Once yeah, the very turns, logical. Gets a little convoluted. Yeah, <laughs> that he would go and um, tail the suspected killer, or yeah. that he would um, let Elizabeth McGovern like be bait for that. I like, know thing is like um, in a is a little creaky when you when you think about it in reality but if you put it in the past it's sort of like well yeah sure why not uh, I, yeah. I think you're more willing to go with that mm-hmm. uh, you're more willing to let like grace kelly go into lars thorwald's apartment and check things out uh that's sorry. exactly I, yeah it's very I mixed, window. Uh, character names with actresses names there um so um so and to some degree i think it 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 um suffers from its 1980s-ness uh the two things that came to mind watching this time also was that because d Lawrence pr- produced it i think they had some operation in north carolina which is why blue velvet was shot uh, in wilmington mm-hmm. and and i kind of like, like in a way now those movies are mixed for like are, are a, a dvd two-pack for me um even though they're wildly different um and, I, and Curtis did share with me when I got fired that he was almost fired off of this movie because wow. DeLorentis had foisted a Italian director of photography on him who spoke no English. And <laughs> the first two weeks were a disaster. Like they were just way behind schedule. And Dino said, I'm going to fire you. And Curtis said, like, you can't like this is the problem like give me a give me somebody I can communicate with, and then uh, he he was he got that, and the, the ship was righted. Um, the other thing that just I, this is an Aaron comment, but because I'm a fan of the Wire, for some reason, because this bedroom window is set in Baltimore, I just started thinking like if you did a mash of like McNulty being the cop that is, <laughs> is investigating this, or <laughs> they're two very different Baltimores. Like it's uh, yeah. the bedroom window. Baltimore is this place where, like, one um, rapist murderer is seems to be on like a high priority for everybody. Whereas yes, Baltimore in real life, is like, <laughs> oh, just everything sucks. There's nothing to yeah. do about that. Um, but I, I just can I, I can imagine all those people living in the same universe. It's it's uh, uh, maybe it was funnier in my head. Um, so yes, like uh, Laura Lipman novels. She, you know, lives in uh, in Baltimore and kind of writes genre work. It's, this would uh-huh. be that kind of thing too. But yeah. Um. So this does, I think, pretty well. Not gangbusters, but it no. like, but he's but he's he's on solid ground from this uh, as as a as a director. Does better than than losing it. Um, so, uh, which brings us to, to, to bad influence, which I think you know more about than I do. So I will kind of hand over bad influence to you. Yes. I wrote an essay on bad influence a few years ago. Now it's my turn to tell a personal story. I wrote an essay that was getting kind of burned out writing film reviews. And so just to like, you know, uh, exercise the creative muscle, I wrote an essay on this. And also I love writing about uh, James Spader. My thesis was actually on Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and I got a scholarship for it. 
So there's something about the Spader um, protagonist and in this era, the yuppie weirdness that uh, fascinates me. So I loved writing about that influence. But afterwards, some reader, and I still don't know who, tracked down my business address, which isn't terribly hard to find because it was registered as an LLC when I did events years ago, and sent me a DVD of uh, bad influence and masquerade which are two with rob Lowe, and just it was there was no address anything just that i hope you write about masquerade too was the uh the note and so for the longest time my friends uh the joke was it was either from the biggest rob Lowe super fan in like the world or it was from rob Lowe. <laughs> so yes rob Lowe, this is really his movie i think he is remarkable as the villain he didn't want to play it he was falling into that post brat pack thing of trying to be likable a lot of actors you know you want to get work and you want to be likable and it was david kep who wrote the script who took him out to lunch and like told him you have to play the villain like this is you and it was a difficult shoot for Rob Lowe. This was around the time of the sex scandal at the DNC, like all of that broke. But years later, uh, there was an interview Lowe did in about 2017. He talked about thinking this movie isn't dated. It was ahead of its time. And he's really proud to have been in it and thinks it's still very good. So he was really proud of this one. Spader loved it, too. Um, I think there are some problems with this sort of like bedroom window gets a little too convoluted and strange uh, in the last act where you do have to kind of check your brain. Uh, this one as well, like the denouement kind of comes out of nowhere. But I, I have a lot of affection for this movie. I think it's it's very cool. There's a lot of great Bob Elswit cinematography. Uh, there's that Instagram account, you know, like uh, the cocaine 80s or cocaine decor. This would be that movie. There's a lot of glass surfaces, a lot of mirrors, uh, frames within frames. It's just a gorgeous looking film. And uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Campy. Yeah. It It is the first of a trilogy of movies he, he makes with Bob Ellswit, who was, um, I will not say they were roommates, but they were very close. Ellswit actually uh, credits um, Curtis with being kind of his film mentor that when they were uh, starting out, Curtis dragged Bob around town, LA to all the revival theaters that were still going uh, when the new art was revival theater, when the Rialto was. And so he got his film education from Curtis. Um, he also tells the story about like breaking his foot and having to, uh, miss out on a gig and basically Curtis let him stay at his place and nursed him for six oh, months. Oh, wow. There are a lot of stories. I'll uh, take a quick break from uh, the movie to say of, of, of Curtis kind of going out of his way. He was one of the few guys I think who went and visited Robert Downey in prison. Wow. After that's one amazing. Boys. And, and by the way, I think, Robert Downey was at the time uninsurable on Wonder Boys. He Curtis, was. He couldn't Curtis even get him. like a credit card in his name. Yeah. Uh, and when and when Robert Downey Jr. got out of prison, uh, mm -hmm. who gave him a place to live for six months. Oh Curtis. wow, that's wonderful. Um, so so there are a lot of uh, sort of unseen, uncredited um, 
acts of humanity uh, by Curtis Hanson out there. I found the movie interesting this time because the Spader role is again, there's something that there's a Curtis quality in that like he's uh, as a guy is a little, little tough to read, but it's also, it's, it's the, uh, as a theme, it's kind of the beta male. Yeah. Both getting attracted to his dark side. I mean, the the Rob Lowe character is a precursor to Tyler Gergen. Um, in Fight Club. Yeah, Tyler Gergen. Yeah. And and um, so there, I think there are always questions of like in these in these thrillers of, OK, who do you trust? Yeah. And that, that each of these characters aren't, aren't sure of, uh, of, of the <laughs> the major secondary character. But also, sort of like, um, what am I becoming? Um, yes, yeah, it's Elliot like Google. strangers on a train, a little bit, but on a beach. Yes. Yeah, um, and because in Strangers on a Train, which is a wonderful movie, Farley Granger never really puts his hand too close to the flame of being a killer of father. No, killer. but uh, Spader it, does. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, but Spader does, and I think I read somewhere that kept admitted to um copping the wrap up the dead girl and put her in a uh, carpet that he copped it from silent partner uh when la gould has to dispose of a body uh, yeah that's interesting i didn't catch that this time i was thinking about psycho and how we're rooting for norman bates to it's like to get you away know, with, yeah yeah just like you're rooting for spader and you're like what am i doing yes um I don't. I didn't look this up. Did Lisa Zane do a lot after this? Sister of Billy Zane, who's sort of the. I uh, don't know either, actually. Because she certainly makes a uh, uh, a mark here, but then Marsha Cross is the one who ends up with a with more of a career. Um, I'm trying <laughs> to think if there's any. I do remember when this movie came out in 1990, and I was 1920, having a film snob reaction to the uh the marquee and i don't know if that was because of rob Lowe and the Probably. sex team that i sort of oh. thought oh, that's like a uh like i didn't go see it i didn't see it for years um i didn't I, see I, it either for years and that did hurt the movie it didn't it, it didn't do fantastically well because of that um but and and i think somehow that stuck in my mind when I first read that Curtis was doing LA Confidential, I like I didn't associate. I, I sort of thought, oh, he's just they got some hack, uh, and, and and so when I did see LA Confidential for the first time, I went, Jesus, I was I I, I didn't anticipate that. Um, I, I this I shouldn't bring up, but but it was that like that youthful film snob thing that takes over. Oh that, yeah. And uh, which sort of leads into Hand the Rocks to Cradle because uh, he's now in a, these three movies. He is a director for hire. Um, yeah. He, he writes Alan Partner and Bedroom Window. Fat uh, uh, Influences by Kep. Hand the Rocks to Cradle is uh, written by um, Amanda uh, Silver. Silver. Yeah, uh, it was her film school it. thesis. Yeah. Uh, a huge career since. And is. Uh, mm-hmm. Now written what's Avatar Two is now the third or second biggest movie of all time. Um, she has a credit on that and some of the Planet of the Apes and um, yes, 
husband, Robert Jaffa. Um, I really should have all these names at the ready. Point is, she writes this movie, Curtis directs it, and it's a massive hit. It's like all the movies he's done, Bad Influence was done pretty cheaply. Bedroom Window 2, this movie is is done for a real price by Touchstone, but is goes uh, is a massive success for him and is, I think, responsible for his him being able to make Confidential in a few years. Like, it, 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 without the success of Hand the Rocks to Cradle, L.A. Confidential doesn't exist. So, um, and in rewatching it, it really, for me, works yeah especially because i have a child and i we actually i watched it with our nanny just because i wanted that experience and <laughs> uh and it, it it is again who do you trust who do you let into your life um yeah it's so scary yeah and what i like about i guess my my big comment about this movie is there's sort of a, that period of thrillers right then include fail attraction is a mm-hmm. big hit Scorsese does Cape Fear um, and Basic Instinct by um, uh, Verhoeven. And I would, and, and what I think is unique about Curtis's movie is that he's not making himself the star. He is not, no, there's not a heavy hip imprint of style. He's, he is, as he says in his LA Confidential commentary, he's talking, he's really focused on characters and emotions. And he's not stylizing it. He's not putting himself in the movie the way you would say De Palma does pretty egregiously and sometimes very enjoyably. I mean, that's why that's his fear Mm -hmm. is because of the fun of watching Scorsese go to town with this. Um, And uh, and that's also probably why Curtis isn't like his name isn't bandied about, but because he is to some degree an invisible filmmaker, you could watch this and most of his movies and not say, uh, and recognize that it's the same guy um, in the same way that maybe who else is like that? I'm got another one coming up. Uh, George Stevens with James Urbaniak. We're going to take a look yeah. at that's another filmmaker who There's worked in a lot of genres. And yeah, even Billy Wilder did a bunch of genres. I still can kind of sniff out. A oh yes. One. Yeah. I think because he also wrote the films yeah. and yeah. Like, William Wyler, Best Years of Our Lives, and Roman Holiday, are, and Ben-Hur are all... You Very good, know yeah. Um, I do... Uh, what did I, I also say? think uh, with this, you mentioned the other thrillers, and I think one thing that sets this film apart is the script by Amanda Silver. Uh, we have a woman writing about women. Curtis Hansen uh, has always... I think been extremely sensitive when it comes to women. You can tell he likes women. Uh, the female characters have full lives in all of his films, even if they're you know small um, roles. The, the the women are very interesting and proactive. And 
he talks about um when it comes to this movie it has like the creepiest opening sequence ever set in a gynecologist's office which you know he said only a woman would write that but as a man he'd been told by girlfriends and people like stories about going to the office and creepy things that happened so he went with his girlfriend and uh, the guy made a creepy joke about, oh, your boyfriend is here, so I'm going to, you know, put gloves on today. And Curtis said that always stayed with him and uh, came, you know, when he it came time to shoot, he decided to do that because he's like, you know, they make weird jokes. And so he wanted to make sure that he was making things very authentic. I mean, you know, it's Rebecca de Mornay doing camp. And uh, she has a lot of fun with it. But Annabella Shiora is excellent. Julianne Moore has a really good scene-stealing supporting uh, performance in, in, in place. what I would call the, the Scatman Crothers role of, yes. the, of the person who who's, comes to save the day. Figures it out. Yes. It, which Too Benjamin late. Bratt takes over in River Wild. And, yes. Uh, there's some other example of Ranger like... Ranger Johnny. Yes. Benjamin yeah. Bratt. <laughs> but, but I would say, because the Julianne Moore role... And I credit her performance, but also it's the part that you could see being a caricature of like she's uh, yeah. like the career woman version. Yes, yeah. exactly. She, 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 she's the ambitious, uh, but there's there's a absolutely a person in the Julianne Moore role. There's absolutely a person in the Rebecca de Mornay role, as much as she's doing camp. Oh yes. So you there's you, some you feel for her earlier and you know stuff. I mean, we see things that you usually don't see with a villain. Um, like you definitely don't get that kind of point of view happening in Fatal Attraction. Uh, and we get it here. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I think you can see even though she may be homicidally deluded but you could you can oh, understand how yeah. she believes that she would be a better mother and wife in this family um yep. because she's been doing a better job at it um <laughs> and uh, uh and i would say i mean I, I was trying to figure out also like the ernie hudson role if if that is something that how dated that would feel today or like if it's if it's i think it's a fairly sensitively sensitively performed yeah. and portrayed depiction of whatever our current term is for special needs but, yes uh but he is in a way the heart of the movie i mean i i oh i know from the minute he walks I, on the screen you're just yes I hate De Mornay by the end of that movie, and I want her dead because of how the way, the way she when she treats him. him. Yeah, much more oh, than the family. Horrible. Um, and I think there's there's something um, uh, very smart in that. So, so that movie does spectacularly well. Yeah, and, number one for several weeks. Mm -hmm. And he does so. So River Wild comes along, which is again a script by I think, is it Dennis O'Dell or is that? Uh, I had it all written down once. Anyway, uh, who I, yes, Dennis O'Neill, sorry, um, who I think was a f newbie writer and I think had some river water, uh, right, uh, river rafting experience. It is, um, and he, and Curtis gets more money to do it along with a, an a, AA level star in Meryl Streep. Oh yes, I heard yeah. that Universal had kicked the tires on Demi Moore, but I think 
That was oh, I mean, to Curtis. me, is great, but no, Meryl. But but, but, so but I remember that was the the sort of the selling point of this of of watch Meryl Streep in a in this sort of movie. Yeah, um, she was. I think at, at the time Meryl Streep was pushing boundaries. Like she had done She Devil, she had done Death Becomes Her. So it was she was getting mm-hmm. out of her um, prestige costume drama era. Yes. Yeah, um, and. Uh, what's my big point on this? Uh, and the movie does well, not yes. spectacularly well, but it does well. But also I think it's a, in rewatching it, I find it like a remarkable technical achievement simply because it's, especially when you think about it in the pre-CGI days, that all the river rafting sequences are done pretty are well. Um, it is not deliverance. It doesn't, I think as a movie kind of get under your skin, it is the desperate hours on a river. Uh, and it's it really is. That's a good way to describe it, but not necessarily anything that, um, sticks with you. And so I, you know, I view it as like something that Curtis cut his teeth on as a craftsman of being able, cause it, it moves pretty well. Um, it does. The ensemble is so great. I think, again, just like Can That Rocks the Cradle, all the films that we've discussed, it really, he works with actors so well. He said part of that was uh, if they ask him a question and he didn't know the answer, he wouldn't lie. He would just straight up tell them because he said, if you show that, that you have no fear to you know look a fool or whatever, then actors respond to that. Speaking of actors, a mutual friend, Donald Logue, uh, I talked to recently, him and his son, and he was telling me he auditioned for River Wild seven times uh, <laughs> for the John C. Riley role. And John C. Riley, of course, went out. He's a good friend of his. But he said he was told that they were shooting in places so remote in Southern Oregon, which is actually where Donald um, has a place right now, that they could only get there by boat. That's how uh, remote um, that they were going to take this thing. And so Meryl Streep just had to go right along with it. She did a lot of her stunts. She almost drowned in one sequence. It was at the end of a day where she said she told Curtis like she was tired. They pushed again. And then afterwards, when they actually had to rush in and, and get her, she said, you know, if I tell you I'm tired at the end of the day, I'm tired because, you know, Meryl is going to give 110%. But I think Kevin Bacon is extraordinary here. I love it when Kevin Bacon plays bad. I think mm-hmm. it's really fun, just like with Rob Lowe, to see those quote-unquote heartthrobs of the 80s uh, play evil or flip that, just like I like it when the character actor types or the John C. Riley types get to play good or mm-hmm. the the protagonist. It's just nice to see some against-type um, casting. And I think Kevin Bacon is so good here, his line delivery on, you know, I am a nice guy, just a different kind of nice guy. The kid gets on my good friend, uh, Jed Ayers, who I did the Terrier episode uh, with his skin. Every time I say I'm watching the River Wild, he's like, I hope they kill the kid this time. Not the actor, of course, but he just <laughs> hates the kid because he's so bratty. He's terrible. Uh, I remember when I saw this with my friends, um, my friend Chris, who is my fellow uh, 
film critic at our high school paper. Uh, he was actually the editor of the paper. He made the very astute observation. He said, I love how David Strathairn at the beginning of the movie is tripping, getting into the boat. And then at the end, he's like sending up smoke signals and he's turned into an Eagle Scout. I mean, that's yeah. you know a lot of fun, but I think it's just a fun thriller. Yeah. It's an oddly structured movie because Meryl Streep is the protagonist, is the hero. Strathairn actually is the one who has to transform. Yes. <laughs> and by the third act, it's sort of like, okay, who am I really like? Yeah. Who's in charge of the story? Um, yeah. There's a little bit of, well, maybe there's not. I was about to say there's a little bit of diehard, meaning it is about a, a married, an estranged married couple. Like finding no, I think that's movie. a good comparison. Uh, yeah, um, I've never thought about uh, killing the boy. Uh, I thought about <laughs> killing his sister in Jurassic Park, uh, but uh, it's the same. It's the same kid actor, isn't it? Um, uh, things I noticed or, or learned about it: uh, Maurice Jarre apparently did the first score for it, which Curtis was very happy with, and yeah. somebody Universal wanted gone. Oh so, wow! And Curtis fought it lost and they brought jerry goldsmith in to do um in very quickly to do a replacement score which was uh jerry goldsmith actually managed that a couple of times chinatown is a replacement score he uh wow apparently some very i can't imagine modern uh score i and i don't know who did it i i think a a polish composer that polanski knew and bob evans said uh we got to called Jerry. And so uh, Chinatown was written in days, not weeks. Um, I think Air Force One, I think he also had to come in and do it the last minute. Um, and it happened to him once. I think he wrote the score for Ridley Scott's um, Legend and they replaced, they they threw that out and replaced it. So it happens. But the point being is this is what uh, Curtis worked with Jerry Goldsmith on this, who then went on to do his next movie, L.A. Confidential. Um, I feel like there was some other um, uh, remarkable insight I had about uh, River Wild. And then I think it's it's sort of, it does cap off the first half of his career as being a journeyman. Yeah. Like s s solid director craftsman. And, uh, and I think... In a way, the the um, the skill he's showing in this movie is like okay, he's really built up to being a very profi proficient director, which now allows him to do LA Confidential. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's also there's something in in the pacing of this movie and in the prior movies which uh, lends itself to Confidential, which I, I'm always amazed is a extraordinarily LA Confidential could have been a very convoluted movie. Yes. And yet it moves like a freight train. It delivers all this information pretty clearly. So you you can kind of you're tracking everything um without stopping. Um and I'm wondering how much I should talk about LA Confidential here just because it's oh, off. Go for it. But um but it, and especially if you know the book, which I, I think the book is great fun, but Curtis and Brian Helgeland did a extraordinary job of like ripping out. out yeah which is one of the reasons why i i'm 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 if i fear for movies or for storytelling in the era that limited series are taking over from movies yes you make if you make how like a limited series there's a bunch of stuff that gets stuck in there that 
would is much better gone. Um, the whole mm. Disneyland subplot uh, with uh, and and Exley's father is a has a threesome going with Inez Soto, and it's just all sorts of stuff that's like um, <laughs> Elroyan, but and sort of fun to read, but uh, it slows down the train and is also okay. makes things a little. I don't know a better word than ickier. One thing yes, about extremely sorted. Yeah, confidential is that Curtis, who I think is a um, humanistic filmmaker, even though he makes thrillers, takes the Elroyan characters who can be pretty dark guys, doesn't necessarily whitewash them, but makes them empathetic and and yeah, like Vincennes and with. all of it. Yeah, um, even even when they're um some of their misogyny some of their racism yes uh, certainly the, there are things that are cleaned up where the, the you know Elroy didn't use negroes as a word in his book uh no um, no and and he certainly uh yeah El, Elroy really luxuriates in the naughtiness and the in, in the impolitic nature of of 1950s LAPD. Yes, I have a story about that actually. Uh, Hotel and then Jordan uh, uh, Harper when he met Elroy actually, and Elroy said, "So this is going to be at CBS, right?" Yes. So at CBS, you can't say, and he went down the list of every word that you couldn't say, but, you know, he said every single word and nope, we can't say that on CBS. So yes, that's very Elroy. But there is something, and I think in, in talking people to uh, to people who knew Curtis, he, I think he kind of knew, okay, this is my shot. Like he had, it's not that he had been... LA Confidential, the book had only been published in 1990. So he's making this in 96. So it's not like a book that he's been tracking for a long, long time. But I think he knew that this was an opportunity to uh, make his mark and to elevate things. And that due to the success of Hand the Rock's Tradle and River Wild, that he kind of could go for it here. That's a good point. Ellswit was not available to shoot it because he had at that point was fallen into PTA land and yes, their marriage, so to speak that ended in divorce a few years back. Um, I don't know the details of that and I'll, no, I don't, I'll let that be either an off post post podcast (laughs) conversation, but, but Bob uh, Ellswood said to me um, that he thinks that if he had been, if Curtis had hired him on this movie, that he probably would have gotten fired because uh, they went so far over, schedule um oh wow and, and that the studio had more confidence in Dante Spinotti and um but I and I from that I'm going to presume extract that Curtis was sort of pushing the limits of what he could get away with to get this movie the way he wanted it I'm amazed that I'm amazed at the craftsmanship and the skill and the uh but I'm also amazed at the Political agility, whether it was Curtis, whether it was uh, who else, uh, Arnon Milton was the producer of it, but uh, everything that allowed uh, that allowed him to cast Guy Unknown Pierce, yes, uh, Russell Unknown Crow, that his big name was Kevin Spacey, who you know was an Oscar winner at that point from Usual Suspects, but was not. Or Cromwell Bay. from Babe, or yeah. Cromwell, and that Kim Basinger and Danny DeVito were really were the, the names, names, but mm-hmm. were 
you know, probably fifth and ninth on the call sheet. Um, yeah. As far as their 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 characters and and all and so to get the movie made, to get any movie made is some sort of political achievement. But to get this movie made uh, at a studio with those people, and I don't know what the budget of it was, uh, and I do know that it did well. It didn't, you know, uh, it, it didn't uh, break records. Um, it may have been profitable, maybe. It certainly was a critical achievement and one a couple of Oscars and and got a little bit dwarfed by the Titanic um, juggernaut. But I, yeah. I think Hanson got fun. an Oscar, you know, Hanson won for for yeah, with Helen for, yep. for writing. Um, and I think there was sort of a feeling that it was the critics' darling versus Titanic at the time. Yes, it was a pretty Very good much. year between that and Goodwill Hunting and uh, and David uh, Fincher's The Game and yeah, Full Monty. I think it was that year. Um, Boogie Nights, I believe. Yeah, same year. Okay. Um, and uh, did I have any other um, confidential? No, I really had a um, another thing, but but I do think it is. I, I guess to come back to this that. Curtis made Elroy palatable, even for an Elroy fan. Yes. Um, it's hard to watch some other Elroy um, adaptations and enjoy them the way I enjoy LA Confidential. These are characters I actually do want to go back and spend time with. And as Curtis says on the commentary, he says, I was focused on characters and their emotions. And that's actually what he does because the trap, especially for this kind of movie and not to kick a movie in the shins, but if you've ever seen Mulholland falls, that's, that's sort of, yes, I remember that movie about cigarettes and hats and how everybody looks. And what I love about LA confidential is like those, that that's all in the background. Everybody looks great. It's done to a T and and I, that's part of the enjoyment of it. But it's not what the movie's about, and it's not about again. Is he doesn't shoot it like a noir? It does. I, I wouldn't consider it a noir. Um, and um, I just think it's a spectacular movie. Um, it really is. Yes, uh, I would have loved to have seen what else what would have done, but I think uh, Spinati was perfect for it. Uh, this would have been coming off of Heat which uh, shows his uh, dexterity and his skill uh, with night photography. I'm kind of one of those people who thinks possibly it should have ended uh, at the Victory Motel, Um, you know, you know, uh, so they know you're a policeman as he's approaching the cars. I love that last shot so much that part of me is like, let's stop it here uh, instead of having. Talk about that for a second, because I think it's 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 worth It's a little bit like Psycho. Like yeah. you could end Psycho with John Gavin defeating Norman Bates. I Bade agree with you. Reveal. Yes. And there's the 10 minute explanation. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of feel like I need um, it actually to breathe a little bit telling me what it's like. I'm not ready to get up from. Yeah. So I've see never that. had a problem with, with the, the exposition scene of Exley. And I think w- when I've run into people who take umbrage to it is the, Russell uh, reveal of Bud Smith still being alive that 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 takes takes away the daring of having of shooting him. For one, I think killing Kevin Spacey two thirds of the way through the movie is 
plenty daring. And oh, that was shocking. Know, yes. Even knowing the book, I was completely stunned by that. And and yeah. all that sort of uh, uh, next to Marion Crane getting it 45 minutes into Psycho is a, a, a great. Um, right at the kitchen table. I Yeah, because I saw this opening night. My my whole family went and for some reason we had to drive really far away to we were living in um, Minneapolis St. Louis Park so it was a drive just to find it because this wasn't playing at every single cineplex and uh, we went to the late show and I think we got out around midnight but yes I remember that moment and it was just dead silence and there were some gasps in the audience when Vincennes gets it yeah and it's also if you look back at the rest of his movies as you said, that influence ends pretty abruptly. Like yes. they, they kills the kid. The guys walk off credits and and, I think it works and kept script a uh, an epilogue, which was like back at a bar, some guys being a beta, and and you pan across and like you see Rob Lowe's or you hear his voice saying something. And it's like, oh, he survived, and here he goes again. Okay, gotcha. Um, Silent Partner sort of has a denouement with, with between Gould and York in the ambulance, but uh, but a lot of those movies sort of feel like all right, we're done, we're we're out. Um, mm-hmm. And because I care about the characters enough in Alley Confidential, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> you want to see that they're going to Arizona? A little bit of a bow. On it. It's not my yeah. favorite scene, but it, it's. Uh, uh, some masterpieces aren't perfect. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'm, Rear Window has a very terrible shot of the helicopters hovering over the bathing beauties, which is like, yeah, oh, that's yeah. cringeworthy bad. <laughs> but it's still, I think, one of the best movies ever made. So I will, yes, well, I will com- happily take that if it gives me the rest of the movie. Um, oh yeah, that's a very good point for sure. Um, anyway, so. I'm not quite sure what else to talk about. I, I do have. Do you have one... thoughts on his follow-ups um, he, going into the more character-based work? Wonder Boys is one of my all-time favorite movies. Talk, um, talk about that for a bit. Um, it's, oh, it's, I've done it's been in... a bit because I didn't review those, but it's all and and I've never I read but did not see Lucky You. Okay. Lucky You was not great. I loved In Her Shoes. I thought that was a very well-made film. Probably features maybe Cameron Diaz's best performance. It's definitely up there. Um, I liked that one better than the book. He, he's a filmmaker who likes to uh, take material from books. His, his father uh, was the teacher. I th- I like it, 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 I think there is... Makes uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth McGovern was the one that recommended... He worked with Steve Cloves, uh, Steve Cloves when it came to Wonder Boys. Um, I love uh, Michael Chabon's work. I think uh, Amazing Adventures of Cavalier Clay is one of the best books ever written. Wonder Boys, however, is not my favorite. I think the film is an improvement on the book. I know I'm going to probably get some pushback on that, but I, I do believe it. I think it's a a movie where you just kind of want to live in it. I'm a fan of films that take place over short time spans. And so this is just one weekend. It's a hangout movie where, you know, they keep having to kind of roll with new problems as they arise. 
you have very creative, highly intellectual characters who keep making bad decisions, but they have a lot of affection for each other and you have a lot of affection for them. It's just one of my favorite. I watch it every year, usually around my birthday. It is, yeah, favorite for sure. A couple of memories about this, which may lead to our conclusion. I don't know, but sure. when I was working with Curtis, I remember it was the the Golden Globes that year. Wonder Boys, uh, Bob Dylan was nominated, mm-hmm. and, um, and Curtis very sweetly invited me because he had like three tickets to the Golden Globes to be to go to the Golden Globes with him. And nice. I was living in New York at the time, and like the Saturday that I was supposed to fly out, there was a blizzard. Oh no! FDA shut in, and I just like I couldn't, I would not be able to get there in time. So I had to tell him and say I can't make it. And then watching the Golden Globes that night and seeing Curtis, somebody who took my seat, Bob Dylan, and it was like uh, I could be right. Yeah, it was 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 maddening. All right, so that's memory number one. Um, this is a therapy session. We're getting yeah, it out thank there. You. Yes. Uh, <laughs> besides Bud Bedeker and 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 him. Uh, Curtis exposing me to him. I, I do remember having lunch with Curtis once somewhere in, in um, Venice and Robert Wise was at like two tables away. And so I got to meet Robert Wise. Oh, wow. Yeah. He died. And there is um, something about Curtis, not, certainly in his filmmaking and in, in that, okay, in, in the movies we've discussed, there's a, um, a reverence for Hitchcock, but, but it's also sort of a, a, more broadly, a, a sort of a, a reverence for for a Hollywood studio system, and and I think he said that he would have, and I got the sense that he was probably born like a generation too late that he would have really thrived as a I agree prolific sort mm-hmm. of guy that you uh, who who Michael Curtiz who you just assign a movie and he goes yeah and that he would have enjoyed that um, that he was not um precious um mm. in that sense and he also both through wasn't a personality director yeah 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 uh and that not only did, did he interview all those people with cinema but i think he threw sam when sam fuller passed he threw a um uh, a memoriam at the dga that was apparently pretty fantastic and he brought a lot of people who'd worked with fuller back and uh, he had a, a very close friendship with Billy Wilder for the last decade of Billy Wilder's life, um, and so there was he was he was a guy who who I think really appreciated those who had come before him. Uh, he talked a lot about Nicholas Ray's in a lonely place and and that uh, yes mm-hmm. uh, and that influence on him. And I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a lot of Dixon Steele in Curtis, but maybe like a little bit of. Uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know what point I'm making, but I but whenever I watch that movie, I think of Curtis now, and um and not because I think he could have been the killer, but uh, uh it, it 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 does remind me of him. The other my other significant memory of Curtis, and maybe this is what we'll end on, is late in life, uh he had a child, mm-hmm. uh, he had a son, uh named Rio, um named yes. after Rio Bravo. Um, and but before his son was born and i'm gonna guess that curtis was 
in his early 60s by this point. I used to hike Runyon Canyon with some friends early in the morning. Um, and this was after my experience with Curtis. So we were friendly, but I felt uh, a little terrible about how it had gone down. And we would quite often pass Curtis on this hike and he had a backpack and in that backpack, he had weights because he was oh, wow. in shape to carry his son around. And when I, I, I guess uh, when I think of Curtis, I like to think of that because he was so excited to be a father uh, that he was doing this preparation and he was always hiking alone. And then a year later, there, Rio was on his back, same hike. And uh, that's so wonderful. And, and, and not to get maudlin, but I think that is one of the things that uh, I hate about um, the disease that hit him is yes. he was, I think, really loving being a father and uh, and for him to have that. And um, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, Rio's off to college in the fall, by the way. Um, oh, good. Uh, to Maine. Um, good luck, Rio. Yes. Good luck, Rio. Well, Ted, I want to thank you so much for doing this, for sharing your memories and uh, this appreciation of Curtis Hansen. He's long been someone that I've been a fan of and interested in, but I really appreciated um you inspiring me to learn more so thank you so much well thank you for for having me back uh, i had a blast uh please of course. Uh, call me again and anytime yes uh, and uh, i love doing it great i also want to thank everyone for listening especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment film rentals RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.